listening to Talk Geek 3 News number 62, recorded for March 7th, 2012. You are listening to the tech-only Hacker Public Radio edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeek3.us. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in DeepGeek, TalkGeek to me. Before proceeding to the tech roundup, I want to announce here that I will be attending the Hope Conference, Hope Number 9, in Manhattan, New York City, in July. So if you want to catch up with me, I would love to break bread with each and every one of you, whoever's going to be there. My contact information is in the vital statistics. Thank you. And now for the tech roundup. From perspectives.mvderona.com, by James Hamilton, dated February 21, 2012, Communicating Data Beyond the Speed of Light. In the past, I've written about the cost of latency and how reducing latency can drive more customer engagement and increase revenue. Two examples of this are the cost of latency and economic incentives applied to web latency. Nowhere is latency reduction more valuable than in high-frequency trading applications because these trades can be incredibly valuable. The cost of the infrastructure on which they trade is more or less an afterthought. Good people at the major trading firms work hard to minimize costs, but if the cost of infrastructure was to double tomorrow, high-frequency trading would continue unabated. High-frequency trading is very sensitive to latency and is nearly insensitive to costs. That makes it an interesting application area, and it's one I watch reasonably closely. It's a great domain to test ideas that might not yet make economic sense more broadly. Some of these ideas will never see more general use, but many ideas get proved out in high-frequency trading and can be applied to more cost-sensitive application areas once the techniques have been refined or there is more volume. One suggestion that comes up in jest on nearly every team upon which I have worked is the need to move bits faster than the speed of light. Faster than the speed of light communications would help cloud-hosted applications and cloud computing in general, but physics blocks progress in this area resolutely. What if it really were possible to transmit data at roughly 33% faster than the speed of light? It turns out this is actually possible and may even make economic sense in high-frequency trading. Before you cancel your RSS feed to this blog, let's look more deeply at what is being sped up, how much, and why it really is possible to substantially beat today's optical communication links. When you get into the details, every law is actually more complex than the simple statement that gets repeated over and over. This is one of the reasons I tell anyone who joins Amazon that the only engineering law around here is there are no unchallengeable laws. It's all about understanding the details and applying good engineering judgment. For example, the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second, right? Absolutely. But the fine print is that the speed of light is 186,000 miles a second in a vacuum. The 
actual speed of light is dependent upon the medium in which the light is propagating. In an optical fiber, the speed of light is actually roughly 33% slower than in a vacuum. More specifically, the index of refraction of the most common optical fibers is 1.52. What this means is that the speed of light in a fiber is actually just over 122,000 miles a second. The index of refraction of light in air is very close to 1, which is to say that the speed of light in air is just about the same as the speed of light in a vacuum. This means that free space optics, the use of light for data communications without a fiber waveguide, is roughly 50% faster than the speed of light in a fiber. Unfortunately, this only makes matters over long distances, but it's only practical over short distances. There have been test deployments over metro area distances. We actually have one where I work, but generally it's a niche technology that hasn't proven practical and widely applicable. On this approach, I'm not particularly excited. Continuing the search for low refraction index data communications, we find that microwaves transmitted in air are again have a refraction index near 1, which is to say that microwave is around 50% faster than light in a fiber. As before, this is only of interest over longer distances, but unlike free space optics, microwave is very practical over longer distances. On longer runs, it needs to be received and retransmitted periodically, but this is practical, cost-effective, and is fairly heavily used in the telecom industry. What hasn't been exploited in the past is that microwave is actually faster than the speed of light in fiber. The 50% speedup of microwave over fiber optics seems exploitable, and an enterprising set of entrepreneurs are doing exactly that. This plan was outlined in the GigaOM article from yesterday titled Wall Street Gains Edge Over Trading by Microwave. In this approach, McKay Brothers are planning on linking New York City with Chicago using microwave transmission. This is a 790-mile distance, but fiber seldom takes the most direct route. Let's assume a fiber path distance of 850 miles, which will yield 6.9 millisecond propagation delay if there are no routers or other networking gear in the way. Give that both optical and microwave require repeaters. I'm not including their impact in this analysis. Covering the 790 miles using microwave will require 4.2 milliseconds. Using these data, we would have the microwave link a full 2.7 milliseconds faster. That's a very substantial time difference, and in the world of high-frequency trading, a 2.7 millisecond is very monetizable. In fact, I've seen HFT customers extremely excited about the very small portions of a millisecond. Getting 2.7 milliseconds back is potentially a very big deal. This article continues with a quote from the McKay Brothers website. To read that quote and examine all the links in the article, follow links in the show notes to the article. From EFF.org, dead February 24, 2012. Appeals Court upholds constitutional right against forced decryption. San Francisco, a federal appeals court, has found a Florida man's constitutional rights were violated when he was imprisoned for refusing to decrypt data on several devices. This is the first time an appellate court has ruled the Fifth Amendment protects against forced decryption, a major victory for constitutional rights in the digital age. In this case, Titled, United States 
versus Doe, FBI agents seized two laptops and five external hard drives from a man they were investigating but were unable to access encrypted data they believed was stored on the device via an encryption program called TrueCrypt. When a grand jury ordered the man to produce the unencrypted contents of the drives, he invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and refused to do so. The court held him in contempt and sent him to jail. The Electronic Frontier Foundation filed an amicus brief under seal arguing that the man had a valid Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and that the government's attempt to force him to decrypt the data was unconstitutional. The 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals agreed, ruling that the act of decrypting data is testimonial and therefore protected by the Fifth Amendment. Furthermore, the government's limited offer of immunity in this case was insufficient to protect his constitutional right because it did not extend to the government's use of the decrypted data as evidence against him in a prosecution. To read the rest of this article, follow the links in the show notes. From EFF.org, by Katitsa Rodriguez, dated March the 2nd, 2012, Mexico adopts alarming surveillance legislation. The Mexican legislature today adopted a surveillance legislation that will grant the police warrantless access to real-time user location data. The bill was adopted almost unanimously with 315 votes in favor, 6 against, and 7 abstentions. It has been sent to the president for his approval. There is significant potential for abuse of these new powers. The bill ignores the fact that most cellular phones today constantly transmit detailed location data about every individual to their carriers. As all this location data is housed in one place with the telecommunications service provider, police will have access to more precise, more comprehensive, and more pervasive data than would ever have been possible with the use of tracking devices. The Mexican government should be more sensitive to the fact that mobile companies are now recording detailed footprints of our daily lives. In response to the law's adoption, Mexican human rights lawyer Luis Fernando Garcia told EFF, quote, Mexican policymakers must understand that the adoption of broad surveillance powers without adequate safeguards undermines the privacy and security of citizens, and is therefore incompatible with their human rights obligations. Unquote. Sensitive data of this nature warrants stronger protection, not an all-access pass. Human rights advocates will evaluate all necessary legal options for challenging the legality of the measure. In the meantime, Mexican citizens should evaluate the possibility of requesting access to their own personal data retained by the mobile company according to the Mexican Data Protection Law. In Germany, the politician and privacy advocate Malt Spitz used a similar local privacy law, which, like laws in many European countries, give individuals a right to know what kinds of data private companies retain about them, to force his cell phone carrier to reveal what records it had on him. The result was 35,831 different facts about his cell phone use over the course of six months, revealing vast amounts of personal information. To demonstrate just how intrusive this data is, Spitz chose to make it all available to the public. Watch the remarkable interactive map of Spitz's location information if you haven't done so. It is time to educate all of our legislatures and the general public that sensitive data warrants stronger protections. EFF will continue to report on mobile and online surveillance in Mexico. From torrentfreak.com, dated February 20th, 2012, by Enigmax. Pirate Bay ISP block challenged for censoring lawful content. During May 
2011, the Copyright Information and Anti-Piracy Center, CIAPAC, and the Finnish branch of the Music Industry Group, IFPI, filed a lawsuit at the District Court of Helsinki. The groups demanded that local ISP ELISA should start blocking the Pirate Bay in order to protect the copyrights of their members, while ELISA initially requested a subsequent court order in October 2011 force them to comply, and last month it was initiated. The matter is currently under appeal, but in the meantime ELISA's block must remain, which means that no content indexed by the Pirate Bay, illicit or fully authorized, is available to the ISP's customers. For one ELISA customer, that situation is unacceptable. Auntie Lane says that the enforcement order handed down to his ISP was unlawful, so he has responded by filing a complaint with the authority that sanctioned the block. His complaint states that under Finnish copyright law, any injunction should avoid collateral damage. Such a wide block fails to consider this responsibility, Lane insists, adding that enforcement of the decision is based in an erroneous application of law. His complaint is being made on three grounds. One, Lane says he has been working on a project and the media created is being distributed via the Pirate Bay. Due to the block, distribution of the content is being affected. Two, as a client of Elisa himself, Lane says that due to the blockade, he can no longer download or indeed upload any material that is deemed by creators to be free distribution. Under copyright law, this legal content cannot be a target of the injunction, but nevertheless its availability is being threatened. Three, Lane states that the injunction is based on an incorrect application of the law. Service providers can only be ordered to block access to infringing files, but there are huge numbers of other works being affected by the blanket censorship. Furthermore, Lane says that the blockade also affects all legal content uploaded to the Pirate Bay after it was initiated, and such preemptive censorship is against Finland's constitution. In respect to item 3, Lane attached a list of Creative Commons GPL and public domain material affected including content from Dope Stores Incorporated, titles such as Steal This Film, Lion's Share, and Zeitgeist from Jamie King's Vodo, Rip, a remix manifesto, Finland's own Star Trek parody series Star Wreck, and many open-source software applications. No blocking mechanism should block content that's available legally, Junas Makinen of Finland's Pirate Party tells Torrent Freak, if the proposed methods can't reasonably differentiate between authorized and non-authorized content, they should never be put into action. There is no reason to block even the Pirate Bay's website itself, as the text and images there, a whopping 90 megabytes, are definitely not illegal for distribution per se, Makinen adds. Lane seeks a correction to the existing injunction so that it no longer breaches the Copyright Act and constitutional law. From torrentfreak.com, dated March 1st, 2012, by Enigmax. Kim.com, U.S. government is protecting an outdated monopolistic business model. After speaking with Torrent Freak on Monday, Kim.com has elaborated on his situation in an interview with 3 News Campbell Live, which now gives us the opportunity to reveal a bit more detail about the current musings of the mega upload founder. Aside from the heavy-hand nature of the shutdown, the underlying shock in this case has its roots in the undermining of a previously presumed level of legal protection for service providers. 
Earlier this week, .com told us that in recent years, Mega Upload has spent millions of dollars seeking out the very best legal advice and the conclusions drawn were clear. Providing the site did its part in tackling infringement, it would be protected on the DMCA and could not be held liable for the actions of its users. Towards achieving this protection, .com told us that the company had developed relationships with 180 takedown partners, companies authorized to directly remove infringing links from mega upload systems, and between them they had taken down in excess of 15 million links. Those companies include the major studios of the MPAA, who, incidentally, in seven years of the company's existence, had never tried to sue mega upload for copyright infringement. On the advice of Mega Upload's legal team, the company believed it had the same rights as YouTube in its case against entertainment giant Viacom. In that 2010 case, the U.S. District Judge Louis L. Stanton said service providers cannot be held liable for infringement as long as they remove links upon copyright holder request, even if the provider knows that parts of their service are being used to host illicit content. YouTube won their lawsuit, and I'm sitting in jail. My house is being raided. All my assets are frozen without a trial, without a hearing. This is completely insane, is what it is, said .com, of his predicament. .com told TorrentFreak that the indictment left out many key facts, not least that mega-upload users enter into a binding legal agreement when they sign up to the file hoster, which included promising not using the service to commit crimes or infringements, a point tackled again today by three newses, John Campbell. Of course, that is a romantic notion, though, isn't it? That just because we tick the box accepting the terms of service that we're going to behave ourselves when we're in there, right? Crescent and Campbell, adding that Mega must have known that people would have inevitably agreed to the terms of service and then gone on and done whatever they liked. Well, there are other laws that protect users, and those are privacy laws. For example, in the U.S., it's the Electronic Communication Privacy Act, which prohibits us from looking into the accounts of users proactively and look for things. Respond.com. It's like mail. It's private. We cannot just go in there and police what these users are uploading. Although the company is clearly trying to distance themselves from comparisons to Mega Upload, Swiss-based RapidShare made the same point in a recent Torrent Freak interview. The file host has said that it would always respect customer privacy by never looking through their files without permission. Earlier this month, the EU court effectively banned the practice after music rights group Spam failed in its bid to force social networking site Netlog to proactively scan upload user files for infringement. It's not unusual for huge figures to be punted around in copyright infringement cases, and in this one in particular, Mega Upload is accused of costing copyright holders half a billion U.S. dollars. That figure has been repeated dozens of times, but according to .com, it's just the tip of the iceberg. If you read the indictment, and if you hear what the prosecution has said in court, at least $500 million of damage were just music files, and it's within a two-week time period. So they are actually talking about $13 billion damage within a year just for music downloads. The entire U.S. music industry is less than $20 billion, he explained. So, with all of the file hosting services out to choose from, why would the authorities single out Mega Upload? We discussed this with .com on Monday, and in common with the Campbell interview, the name Mediafire came up. Mediafire is a huge file hosting operation. In July 2011, they were clocking up 34 million unique monthly visitors and 3 million behind Mega Upload. In the previous month, the term Mediafire 
was even partially censored by Google as being a piracy-related term, there can be little doubt that either Hollywood or the recording labels asked Google to take this action. But of course what Mediafire doesn't have is the imagery generated by the figurehead like .com, and if there's one thing that Hollywood is all about after money, it's image, and .com believes he presents their perfect arch-enemy character. I'm an easy target. My flamboyance, my history as a hacker, you know, I'm not American. I'm living somewhere in New Zealand, around the world. I have funny number plates on my cars. You know, I'm an easy target, he told 3 News. I'm not Google. I don't have $50 million in my account. And right now, I'm not a penny on my account. All my lawyers currently are basically working without a penny, and they are all still on board and still doing their job because what they see here is unfair, is unreasonable, and is not justice. But when one cuts through all the drama of the past couple of months, and even with the demise of Mega Upload, a service painted as the worst of the worst by Hollywood and the authorities, piracy has not gone away. Despite everything, it continues, and .com believes the reasons for that are obvious. It's a service issue, with regional time delays providing a prime example. If the business model would be one where everyone has access to this content at the same time, you know, you wouldn't have a piracy problem. So it's really, in my opinion, the government of the United States protecting an outdated monopolistic business model that doesn't work anymore in the age of the Internet, and that's what it all boils down to, he explains. Yesterday, at the behest of the U.S. government, a court in New Zealand considered revoking Kim.com's bail. In the event that attempt failed, with the mega-upload founder continuing to insist that he's not going to flee the country, as the prosecution has suggested. For what it's worth, we believe .com's claim. He is full of fight, genuinely optimistic, that he can win this battle, and has exciting plans for the future, none of which appear to involve hiding in a cave or befriending Hugo Chavez. I'm no piracy king, he concludes. I offered online storage and bandwidth to users. That's it. You can watch the full three news show here and read our earlier articles here. Other headlines in the news. To read these news, follow links in the show notes to the article. Debate over non-GPL version of BusyBox supposedly settled. Gigabit Internet for $70, the unlikely success of California's Sonic.net. News from HavanaTimes.org, InTheseTimes.com, The Audio, Moment of Clarity Number 121, Maggie MaggieMcNeil.WordPress.com, PerspectivesMVDerona.com, and AllGov.com, used under arranged permission. News from EFF.org and TorrentFreak.com, used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution License. News from PeoplesWorld.org, used under permission of the Creative Commons by Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Audio interludes, NSA and vote courtesy YouTube user Anani Ops. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek, Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work, as well as allowing you to modify the work, so long 
as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Share Alike, 3.0 license.